Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, January 19th, we're studying Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. St. Luke moves ahead in his narrative by almost 20 years to the beginning of John's ministry in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Rick Jones. Pastor Jones serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. So we are talking about Luke chapter 3. There's a pretty big jump in terms of time in the narrative between the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. What do we need to know in terms of context, both in the text of Luke itself and liturgically, that'll help us as we prepare to look at Luke 3 this morning? Uh, sure. So Luke 3 here, uh, we move in, in Luke's gospel, we're going back and forth between the preparation with the birth of John and then the birth of Jesus, right? They go back and forth, uh, and we get that going back and forth again. We return now to, uh, a setting where John is going to be talked about and his role in the, the coming of the Messiah. And so we have, we've gone through their births, through those sort of initial stages. And now um, we've jumped ahead in the life of all of these characters. And we see John active in his ministry. Um, He's going to be preparing the way of the Lord actively now, uh, which is fitting that this, uh, this text gets used for Advent, which is exactly what we do in that time, right? It's that season of anticipation for Christ's birth, the anticipation of the advent of the Messiah, the promised one. And so we get to participate in that sort of uh, announcing, that preparation with with uh, John as we, we read this text. We together usher in the coming of the Messiah, and that's how it gets used uh, liturgically. It also gets used um, in series C for the baptism of our Lord, uh, which is fitting because uh, in, in Luke's gospel, you don't get quite as big of an explanation of the baptism, but you do get it. You get John sort of his, or yeah, John the Baptist doing the prep work. And then the very end of the, the lesson beyond what we're studying here today, but the, the next two verses actually have Jesus being baptized and the, the spirit descending on him and the voice of the father saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, so as John prepares the way for the Lord, we see the Lord take that role on. Uh, as he is baptized and receives that that blessing that we, he's going to then bestow on all of us. So that's kind of the liturgical context of it. Um, historically, uh, Luke is showing that he is the, the historian. He lays out uh, the context using the Roman officials and the Jewish officials. And it provides, um, you know, precise, specific calendars for the readers and hearers, regardless of their their local culture. It's also going to, you know, sort of be a subtle sign that the events of this narrative are maybe important for all people, regardless of where their heritage is or where they call home. And that's that's kind of the 
the initials. And I don't know if you want to say anything else before we get into who's mentioned. No, that's that's really good. And and just a reminder that we we are going to go back, I don't know, back, but John comes up again. He was kind of the in in some ways he was the main character in chapter 1. He dominated much of the narrative in chapter 1. Of course, yes. as the one preparing the way of the Lord who is mentioned there in chapter 1. Jesus in his birth and as a as a 12-year-old child has been the focus in chapter 2, and now here comes John again. So he's he's going to be fulfilling those things that were told about him in chapter one around his birth, both from the angel Gabriel and later his father, Zachariah and the Benedictus. We're going to get to see John start to do that. And as you said, Luke is going to set the stage in a very historical way. We've seen him do this before. That's how chapter three starts. So I'm going to read just those first two verses where Luke sets the stage. Luke three verses one to two. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So the historical context there in verse Verses 1 and 2, Pastor Jones, tell us a little bit about some of these folks that Luke mentions. Sure, and I just want to say, good job reading. Uh, this is <laughs> right up there with the the uh, Pentecost reading with all those crazy place names and things. So good job. <laughs> um, so yeah, Tiberius, um, he would have initially served as regent under Caesar Augustus, but with Augustus' death uh, in like AD 14, that sort of signifies the begin of Tiberius's reign. And so the 15th year um, would put this narrative of, of John's ministry here somewhere between 28 and 29, depending on if you're counting inclusively or exclusively and where in the calendar year that's going to fall, um, which fits perfectly with Pontius Pilate's time as governor because he served uh, from AD 26 to 36. And uh, using that date, if we're going to settle on that 28, 29, uh, that makes the Herod mentioned Herod Antipas, who was in power from 4 BC to AD 39. He's the son of Herod the Great, um, who would have been the Herod in charge at the time of Jesus' birth. Um, and then he's got a brother, uh, Philip, who would have been the tetrarch of, I don't think I'll pronounce him the same as you, but it. <laughs> Iturea and Trachonitis until about 33 AD. Um, and Philip will be important later as we see at the end, at the close, the bookend of, of this, this passage. But uh, yeah, a lot going on there. Um, I, I, I guess uh, if, if Herod the Great was in power at 4 BC, till 4 BC, and that's when it ends, I think we, we got to acknowledge the calendar makers, I guess the Gregorian calendar. So the monk Greg, Gregory or whatever, he did a really good job, but he's off by a couple of years, it seems like. Sure. Yeah. The the dates are, are sometimes it's it's kind of hard to to figure precisely, but yeah. right, likely Jesus was actually born in a year BC. Yeah. But but uh, you know that's that's not on Luke. <laughs> that's no, on, it's exactly. That's, <laughs> so so what about? Let's see. We we've made it through. Then there's there's another political oh, leader, sure, Licinius. Sure. Who's who's he, or do we even know? Yeah, uh, I mean, all the other ones are pretty prominent, right? They have some sort of scope to them culturally, politically, uh, in the region. This uh, Lysanias is a bit more obscure. 
Um, he was a tetrarch in Abilene, which was south of Damascus and bordered on Syria. So what I found in my studies is some people believe that Luke actually came from Syria, and so they speculate this was why uh, Lysanias is, is mentioned. Uh, but, you know, that's only a guess. And then um, Reverend Dr. Art Just, his commentary on Luke served as a lot of my research, and he suggests that it might be a rhetorical device to provide a, a clean list of five names with Herod being at the center. Uh, and they also suggest that maybe, you know, Lysanias was just more of a significant person to people in that time. Either way, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's just, it's putting us firmly into a real historical setting. So that's, that's why they're mentioned. You know, hmm. Now, what about these two religious leaders you get? This is, and I'm not sure that Luke has done this yet. We've heard him mention political leaders before. Now he mentions Annas and Caiaphas. Who are they? Yeah, so the final names uh, to establish sort of now a religious uh, sort of context. They're they're the chief priests, Annas and and uh, Caiaphas. Uh, Annas served as the high priest, you know, from AD six to about fifteen, and then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, would have served from eighteen to thirty-six. So it seems a little strange. Why are you mentioning someone who's not a high priest anymore in this? It hasn't been for you know almost fifteen years. Why is he being mentioned? Uh, so most people attribute it to, well, we knew he had significant lasting influence. And so it's not necessarily surprising that he's mentioned. It just shines a little more clarity into that historical perspective. People would have known who he was um, and why they had understood why he's being mentioned here. Uh, even, even though it's his son-in-law who's in power, he would have been a man of some clout and some authority. So, but again, regardless of the specifics to their inclusions, uh, Luke uses these figures to give the reader a definitive connection to the real world history, um, culturally, politically, and religiously for the setting of his book. Right, and and again, as as we've said, he's done this before. Yeah. This is and and I, you know, I like the way that you phrased it. He's giving us a real historical context. You know, Luke's not writing a fable or a fairy tale. These are things that actually happened. He's done the research, and he grounds it in what you might call secular history. But but what I love about and I, I think this note in particular accomplishes this quite well uh, is that he does mention them. And these are important figures historically, particularly Tiberius Caesar, someone that is still very well known, studied in history today. Yes. But it's very obvious that Luke, although he mentions Tiberius Caesar, he doesn't really have much to say about him. Instead, <laughs> Luke wants you to pay attention to this guy out in the wilderness named John. So we read through verse two. How does Luke introduce John and why is that significant for what we're going to read in just a few moments? Well, yeah, so besides establishing him at a specific point in history, uh, we get a straight-up Old Testament prophet call here, right? The word of, the, of God came to John. That echoes in my mind all the time. The word of the Lord came to, you know, insert prophet. The ones that come to my mind are Jeremiah, Jonah, Elijah. I just, I hear those verses in my head when I hear that phrase. The word of God came to, or the word of the Lord came to. And so for this narrative, Luke is putting John directly in line with the prophets of old. Um, I mean, he's going to have a message that is the ushering in of a new era of God's people, but he's still connected to the previous uh, sort of way in which God is, is connecting to the people. So he has an Old Testament call with a New Testament content to his message. Uh, he's 
been identified as the son of, of Zechariah, so tying us again to real people that the narrative has already uh, introduced to us. And he's described as going out into the wilderness around the Jordan to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, it's all connecting back to you know, the stories and the history that the people already know about, are already connected to. And that's, uh, that's how we're being ushered in here. So the word of God comes to John, the son of Zechariah. And I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely an Old Testament callback. You mentioned Jeremiah, which we studied here on Sharper Iron back last summer. And I just, I remember in Jeremiah's call, when the word of the Lord came to him, the Lord told Jeremiah that he was going to set him over nations. I mean, I think you see something similar in the way that Luke writes it here, that he's mentioned these nations, these leaders of nations. But in the midst of it, here comes God's word to his prophet, John, who, as you said, you know, he's got that Old Testament background, but he's coming to usher in the New Testament. He's got the, I mean, one way I've heard it phrased before, he's got a foot in both Testaments. Yeah. And, yeah. and you, I mean, I think that part of the point of all of this, you know, this historical background that we've been talking about, well, what's, what's the point? Luke, I think, wants you to know the word that's come to John, you need to listen no matter who you are, whether you find yourself under the religious leadership of, of you know, Annas and Caiaphas in Israel, or you're part of this large Roman empire, you got to listen to this John guy. So yeah. pay attention. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So I, there's, there's the force. Let's keep reading. So what, what's John going to be doing? We're picking up now in verse three of Luke chapter three. And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That takes us through verse 9 of the text. So, uh, Pastor Jones, we've been calling him, he's John the Baptist. That's one of the things that, that Luke tells us from the get-go. What's he doing out there in the wilderness? He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Tell us about, I mean, there's a summary statement. Tell us a little bit about what that says about John's ministry. Yeah, so he's a baptism uh, specifically for repentance and forgiveness of sins. He's out in the wilderness. He's doing it in the Jordan River. Uh, these are all clear you know, indicators, clear signposts for for God's people. These are settings that they're familiar with. It's tied into their history. Um, the, the prophets, you know, crying out in this way, it's all, it's all imagery that they, they know. And so this setting, um, it's a callback, I think, to Israel's time in the wilderness. They, they had to cross over from the wilderness, crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land. God's using the same imagery and process now to bring his people into a new promised land. Right? This time it's not geographic. It's not, you know, found on a map. It's a spiritual promised land and it's not going to have any end. It's going to go on forever. It's an eternal promised land. 
And so I think Luke sees that, or at least, you know, the spirit working through Luke is doing this, I think. Um, and so he uses this, this passage from Isaiah 40, uh, verses 3 and 4. I think it helps us not only, again, link John back to the Old Testament prophets, um, but the way in which he's doing that is very striking. This, this imagery that, okay, something new is happening. God is doing something active here. Um, and that's, that's how it's being established. That's how it's being introduced. But I, the, a little textual thing here, um, the quotation that we see in our New Testaments likely comes from the Septuagint, uh, not the Mesoritic text, which is what our Old Testaments are based on. Uh, the verse we see in our Old Testaments would say, the voice of one calling, and then what is the voice actually saying? The voice is saying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. While Luke places the voice itself in the wilderness, a voice that is crying out in the wilderness uh, for those preparations. I mean, it's not really important. Both understandings can be correct, is that's where John is doing his, his calling is in the wilderness, and therefore he's preparing it uh, out there. But either way, it's just interesting that um, it doesn't matter which uh, sort of textual tradition you're, you're following here. Uh, it's all proclaiming the truth of, of, of God's word, and it's all, it's all tying us into the same message that um, there's something happening, there's someone coming, and the way needs to be prepared because this changes everything. Um, Luke's the only gospel that has that, the second half of that citation from, from Isaiah. He includes the portions um, with that dramatic imagery of filling in valleys and flattening mountains. It, I mean, it demonstrates just how important God's message for the people is. It, it describes just how drastic and powerful God's work is in our lives. Uh, the voice is preparing a way by completely reshaping the landscape of creation. All creation, the earth and land is mentioned, but so is flesh. That's a part of creation. Everything must be remade in the coming of the Lord. The message of repentance and forgiveness should have that same effect in our lives. If we are going to allow maybe a little allegorizing of the text, we could say that the wilderness that needs to be prepared is the wilderness of our sinful hearts and our, our sin-broken lives. That is the wilderness that needs to be prepared. And how do we prepare it? We tear it down and start over. That is what true repentance is. Hmm. I, I don't know if, um, you know, allegorizing maybe, if, if that's the right way of saying it, but I do I do think the fact that Luke includes this imagery there in it, um, and just the verses in Luke, Luke 3, 5, and 6, about the valleys being filled and mountains being made low, yeah. It ties in very nicely to what Luke has already recorded in other places, and what jumps into my mind is is the Magnificat, where where Mary talks about you know God showing the strength of His arm and bringing down the mighty from their thrones and exalting those of humble estate. So I don't know that what you're doing is is allegorizing, but just you know reading it contextually within Luke. He's already given us the idea of, of what it means for a valley to be brought or a valley is brought up, the mountains are brought down. He's he's talked about this already in the ministry of, of Jesus, and now John's going to participate in that as well in his preaching. Sure. And I mean, so I think he's given us that that interpretive key to understand it. Now, having said that, there is an aspect in which all creation is redeemed. And so, yeah. you know, I think there, you know, we should also read it in that light, in the, the full restoration of creation that we know the scriptures promise. And I, I think we don't want to lose that from, from Luke's gospel as well. But to, to see that, you know, that this is what, I mean, that's what we're going to read John doing is 
preaching repentance to those who are pride prideful in their thoughts and then preaching good news to those who have been humbled you know i mean so i i think the way that you're reading it fits very well with with what luke has already given us and just that you know that he does this that he includes this longer quotation from isaiah and really sets the stage for for the universality of his gospel uh, oftentimes we think of matthew as a gospel that's written primarily to those of Jewish background because of the number of Old Testament citations that he gives and the way that he says Jesus fulfills these things, you know, it seems to fit with that. Luke definitely has a, a and of course, you know, Matthew definitely is including everyone. He, he gives you the promise of Jesus, you know, go into all nations. But Luke also has this, you know, this universality is a big part of his, his theme. And I think this longer quotation from Isaiah fits into that. So all of that is to say yes, and hopefully add a little bit to, to what you're saying, Pastor Jones. <laughs> yeah, no, and yeah, I suppose maybe spiritualizing as opposed to allegorizing is, is the better way to, to understand go. that. Um, but I, I, I agree, obviously. Um, and I think uh, him including sort of these these worldly rulers is another sort of maybe yes. a little wink and a nod to just what kind of mountains are going to be brought low here um, and what sort of valleys need to be filled in. Um, yeah. And uh, again, the bookend is going to show this in the great reversal, sort of, so to speak, um, of what what looks like worldly wisdom uh, makes no sense when it comes to God's wisdom. And he will undo even the greatest human power with something so seemingly insignificant, but it makes all the difference in the world. Um, and John doesn't back away from that. That's right. John John does not back away from from anything it seems. So we 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 read his initial preaching verses 7 to 9. Take yeah. us into that. What what's John out there preaching? Yeah, so, you know, obviously the basic message again, repent, you know, mm-hmm. the Lord is coming. Uh you need to be forgiven for your sins. But what I found really interesting um is, you know, just uh as much as small or long or whatever of a career as I've had so far as a pastor, you know, all the reading of the Bible, I always think of what John says here when he refers to the whole crowd as a brood of vipers. I always only associate that with Jesus' words, specifically the Pharisees. And I had to go and check in, in Matthew 23, 33. That's where he does it, right? You brood of vipers. Um, but even like recalling John saying it here as I'm reading the text, my mind still connected it specifically to the the Pharisees instead of the the general public. So I don't know. Um, it's just funny how that that we do that in, in our reading stuff. But you know why well, is John just if that? I if I can if I can interrupt just briefly. Yeah. So I mean in in Matthew chapter three, which is a parallel text to Luke chapter yeah, yeah. three, when Matthew records John's ministry in the wilderness, he does single out that so this is Matthew three verse seven. When he oh, saw sure. many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. So it I mean, I guess it and I know we're not studying Matthew right now, but yeah, yeah. but in, in Matthew it, it seems that you know Matthew wants you to make sure you know that this brood of vipers includes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke wants to make sure you know you too, even yeah. if you're not a Pharisee yeah. or Sadducee, you're one of the brood of vipers. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, perhaps it's a it's it's a way of him, yes, helping us identify the types of people, the types of groups that are included in this crowd. Uh, Perhaps, you know, as you were kind of going there, it's a, a subtle way of him showing us that without repentance, we are all a brood of vipers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So yeah, he after a, identifying the crowd as vipers, he sort of immediately tells them what they need to do. Okay, you're a bunch of vipers, so now do this. Right? Uh, he tells them acceptance of his message, what it's going to mean. It means a change in your heart. Your life is now going to reflect that. If it's about true repentance and receiving that forgiveness, you're going to bear those fruits of repentance. Um, that always reminds me of, of King David's words in Psalm 51. Um, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is, this is how one would prepare the way of the Lord, with a humble, repentant heart, turning away from sin and turning toward the mercy of God. The way to the kingdom is being prepared with forgiveness, not with active deeds on behalf of the people. I think that's, that's a really important point, because as we will see, John is going to be very specific in what these fruits of repentance look like. He's going yes. to give very specific things to do, but but we do want to make sure that we don't see John as a preacher of moral improvement, as if he's saying to the crowds, fix your life, and then you're good with God, or, or something very crass like that. He, <laughs> he is a preacher of repentance and forgiveness, yeah. as Luke's going to tell us later. And I, I love the way that Luke phrases it, that, that John is a preacher of good news. Sometimes when you're listening to this part of his preaching, you forget that he is a preacher of good news. And so to, I mean, to, to connect that to Psalm 51 and King David's words there, and, and to remind us that, you know, this isn't just a matter of fixing your life and then you're good. This is a matter of repentance and forgiveness, of letting God be the Savior. That's, that is the key to John's preaching, so that we, we understand him on his terms and, and don't make him into something that he's not. So I, I really appreciate that reminder, Pastor Jones. And before we, before we pick up the rest of John's preaching, we do need to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking the beginning of Luke chapter 3 with Pastor Rick Jones. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, January 19th. We're studying Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20 with Pastor Rick Jones. He is chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, prior to the break, we were looking at this summary that St. Luke gives us of John's preaching. He's called the whole crowd a brood of vipers, and he's told them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This isn't just moral improvement, but it is a turn from sin and toward the Savior. And then he he starts to mention some of their potential objections or what they might say instead. And he, he tells the crowd, don't try to say, we have Abraham as our father. What what is this objection that John's anticipating, and why would that be the wrong thing to say? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, as you said, not just 
uh, moral improvement. It's it's not just a general sort of repentance going through the motions. No, he's he's going after very specific sins here, a, a sin of idolatry based on their lineage. Um, and we, we see it elsewhere in scripture. So we know what must have been prevalent among the Jews of, of that day. Um, there are several places where the people appeal to their status as children of Abraham. And that seems to be for them, their assurance of God's grace, right? We are children of the covenant, so to speak, because Abraham is, is our father. But here John calls that out as, as the nonsense that it is. He's, he uses the same counter that Jesus will do uh, in confronting this issue, saying God can create children of Abraham out of these stones. Uh, it's, it's never been about who your parents are. It's been about what those forefathers did. You know, that connects us forward to, to Hebrews, right? It's by faith that all these things were, were accounted to them as righteousness. But here, um, you know, the stones, the stones themselves can be turned into children of Abraham. There are uh, some commentators, including a few church fathers who would have been, you know, sort of closer to that time. So maybe they have a little more insight into how these words are used. So they've asserted that John is referring to the Gentiles themselves as the stones. They claim that the term would have been used sort of in a derogatory way to describe those that are not in the covenant. But again, regardless of what the specific reference is here, uh, the point is valid. God creates children of Abraham from the Gentiles, not by virtue of their ancestors, but by virtue of their faith, which is why Abraham is a child of the covenant in the first place. But he trusts God's uh, promise. He trusts that God is going to provide the heir. He trusts that God is going to make his offspring as numerous as the stars and as numerous as the sand. So here it's that baptism of repentance, which brings forgiveness. That is the process through which God is going to accomplish this miracle of life from unlife. God is alone is the one that can do that. In this case, it is living faith from sin-fallen, unfaithful, dead hearts. That is the miracle that's going to be happening. Now, how does the imagery of the axe at the root of the trees, which is in verse 9, how does that play into John's preaching? Yeah, so uh, a fruit tree, unfruitful fruitful trees being chopped at the roots, kind of familiar imagery for judgment. It appears throughout the Old and the New Testament. So John is warning that those whose lives do not show the fruits of faithfulness, uh, faithfulness to God, that faithful repentance, um, the broken and contrite heart, they will experience the divine wrath. The image of clearing out unfruitful trees is reminiscent of the complete reshaping of the landscape that uh, was cited in the Isaiah passage. To prepare the land as a new harvest ground, it needs to be cleared of all forests and trees first. So this chopping and burning of unfruitful trees is a necessary part of preparing the way of the Lord's arrival. You can't you can't plant a new crop. You can't get a fruitful harvest from uh, you know ground that's already occupied, especially by something that is just a waste of resources. Now, Pastor Jones, then, with that imagery, I, I think, I mean, this is something that you were pointing out to me that I, I don't think I'd noticed before. That fits in nicely with the whole idea of, of things being leveled, right? The the chopping yeah. down of trees goes with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the complete reshaping of, of the landscape. Uh, you, you level mountains, you fill in valleys, removing the trees is the same same sort of thing. It's, it's um, 
making that wilderness not so wild. It is preparing it for the Lord's arrival, preparing it for what God is going to do moving forward. Mm. And that, uh, I mean, that fits with judgment too, whether it's for the purposes of refining or getting rid of and burning up what is, is, is not a value. That's, mm. that's what happens when, when God comes, when his judgment comes is a, a leveling of all things. It is a laying bare of all things. And that is, that is what will happen. Mm. And so the crowds are rightly stirred by this, and they yeah. respond. So let's let's keep going in verse 10 and following. You get a little more back and forth with the crowds and John. So verse 10, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 3, verses 10 to 20. So, Pastor Jones, we get this back and forth between the crowds and John, and again, some some other characters, other figures in this account that are mentioned that we don't get in the other Gospels. So, I mean, this is a pretty a pretty unique thing that Luke does here. Take us into this back and forth that, that John has with the crowds and some specific groups within the crowd. Yeah, so he, he gives them, he you know, calls them a brood of vipers, tells them what they need to do, uh, or, you know— anticipates what they're going to say. Uh, and he says, if you're unfruitful, you're going to be chopped. Well, then they're responsible. Well, what do we need to do? What should we do? Uh, they, they respond seeking the actions required of them to avoid the fate of those unfruitful trees. They don't want that judgment. Um, and so their question, what then shall we do? It's a construction that shows uh, much urgency. So we get the impression here that they are truly looking to John for help. It's not just you know, them patronizing him or, or, um, you know, playing the devil's advocate. They're, they're, they're genuine in, in looking for this help, um, which is more than a little ironic that it's, it's these people that he's going to mention their specific, um, or he does mention their specific roles, right? It's, it's the soldiers and the tax collectors and seemingly those that are not involved with the covenant that are asking these questions. It's, it should be the Israelites that know that the Lord is coming, asking these questions. How do we get ready if he's on the if he's on his way? What do we need to do? Um, but John answers their question in such a way that it is not that group. It is not the Jews doing this. I think that's ironic. It's 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 those that should not have the knowledge of God's witness of God's covenant. And his response shows us that right. He assumes um, 
that the crowd includes soldiers and tax collectors, which are two professions not highly favorable among the Jews. Soldiers would often exploit their positions alongside the Roman authorities to force services or steal goods from the citizens. And no one is fond of those who exploit them. Uh, likewise with tax collectors. In that time, um, you, you might end up a tax collector by force. You are forced into that position because you became overwhelmed by debt. Um, but then once in those positions, the tax collectors would collect more than required to benefit only themselves. And so beyond just being lackeys for Rome, they often were viewed as, as being thieves. But both of these groups were considered to be living immoral, unclean, or unworthy lives. And they're the ones that John specifically ad addresses here. Um, interesting. I, I, well, I, I, do th I do think that's important that, you know, with the, with the tax collectors, we do know that there are some tax collectors who are Jews, and, and the most obvious one would oh, be absolutely. Matthew, yeah. you know, I mean, so Matthew was a tax collector, and, and he also is a Jew. So, so not everyone in these groups are, are Gentiles, but the mention of soldiers, that one seems, I mean, there are going to be some, say, like, temple guards that could be referred to there, I suppose. But I mean, you think about, say, there's a centurion who's going to come up later in this gospel. Yeah. You know, he's, he, and who is a friend of the Israelites. But again, you, you do see the universality being uh, drawn out here. And I think even you know, regardless of Jew or Gentile, both the mention of soldiers and tax collectors, regardless if they're Jew or Gentile, these are yeah. probably not the people that you're expecting to respond. You know, it, now that you, you mentioned the thing with the brood of vipers and that you, you usually associate that with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, reading here in Luke 3, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, are not particularly mentioned in Luke's yeah. gospel. And, and you would, I mean, again, if, if I'm a, a first century reader of a gospel, that's probably who I'm expecting to respond positively. Luke only records the positive responses of those that I'm probably not expecting, which again is, I mean, it goes to that surprising nature of the way God works. And this is going to be something that we're going to see, especially in Luke, you know, where Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And yeah. who is it that gets upset? It, it is those very religious leaders that you would think would respond positively to Jesus, but they don't end up doing so. And so, yeah, again, just to, this is a, for, for me, it's a good reminder to, to read the gospel of Luke as the gospel of Luke, and, and certainly to, to bring in the other gospels where appropriate, but also to make sure that, you know, that we read what Luke is wanting us to, to get and to pick out his particular nuances. And I think we're, we're seeing that here. So take us then with, with the figures in place, we've got the crowds in general, and then the tax collectors, and then the soldiers. What does John, what is the fruit of repentance that he gives to each group? Yeah, yeah. So John's response to their questions, you know, what then shall we do? Um, it essentially gives them examples of what those fruits in their lives should do? What, what should they pre be producing as faithful trees? Um, if they're open to the message of repentance and forgiveness, their lives will be changed. Their hearts will be prepared for the Lord, and they're going to reflect the mercy that they have received. And so the fruits of faith for soldiers is to not exploit the community. For tax collectors, faithful fruit is collecting only what is required instead of burdening those that you collect from. And for the general public, it is to treat one another with grace and mercy. When John says to give a spare tunic to the one without, he's referring to an undergarment. 
Now, some commentators suggest this is this is a layer for added warmth and comfort, but um, I mean, if it's an undergarment, I would suggest that it's more than that. Uh, our undergarments are our most basic layer of covering. They are not there for warmth. They're there for our dignity, for our modesty. Providing an undergarment for someone who has none is to restore their humanity. It is to show mercy. And it reminds me of, of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, um, towards the end of that passage when he's talking about the church as the body of Christ. He says, on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, uh, are treated, are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. I just, I think that's what's going on here. It's, it's showing mercy to somebody who has not received it yet. Um, sharing food, I think, carries a little bit of the same weight. To share with someone shows their worth and value. To eat with someone makes them your peer, your equal. That's why the Pharisees and Sadducees get so scandalized by Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Anyone associated with God's divine goodness, you know, the children of Abraham, those that are within the covenant, uh, they should not dare to be diminished or soiled by the presence of those so lowly, defiled, or unworthy. But it's that attitude that really misses the whole point, doesn't it? I mean, this is precisely why the Messiah must come to humanity to remove that burden of sin, to remove the division between God and man. And that is why the way is prepared through repentance and forgiveness, the, that uh, humbling of oneself, that laying low of our own pride, of our own sinfulness, uh, filling in those valleys of shame to receive that forgiveness from God. Now, as Luke continues, it seems that the people who listen to John, and again, these are surprising people that he's pointed out to us, they are really taking this to heart. And, and they're taking it to heart so much so that the expectation that's there begins to lead them to ask, well, who is this John anyways? So how does John answer the question about who he is, and particularly whether or not he's the Christ? Yeah, so I think... Luke includes that, you know, the people are wondering among themselves if John was the Messiah, because that's what the, only the Messiah would come and bring us a message so incredible, right? Um, but really all the prophets have been <laughs> sharing the same message throughout time. Um, but I think with John, um, likely his appearance, his lifestyle, uh, the message of all being uh, so similar to the Old Testament prophets, uh, and especially Elijah, as he gets described a lot of time, um, I think they're what so strongly connects him with that messianic idea. Um, there, I mean, it, it could be um, that this is sort of the, the fringe sort of community as well. Uh, some have thought uh, because John dresses and acts the way he does and uh, his imagery with um, judgment and stuff appears in the the. Qumran text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they said, well, maybe it's because he's an Essene and, and that was weird and hip to the people. And so they're like, oh, maybe maybe he's the Messiah. I, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> the, the point is, John knows what they're thinking uh, because they're expressing the idea and he doesn't miss a beat. He points them firmly away from himself and toward the true Messiah. 
who will come with real power and real authority and a real force of judgment. Um, whether or not that judgment is of wrath or blessing will depend on the state of each person's heart. Have they been baptized in repentance for forgiveness? Has the way of the Lord been prepared for them? Are they receiving John's message with ears of faith? Or are they unrepentant in their sinfulness? That will um, determine how, they, how the Lord receives them in his coming. John does his due diligence in distancing himself from the true Messiah. He, he puts even more distance there when he's, he dramatically sort of describes his position compared to the Messiah. It's, it's a fitting distance between him and, and Jesus. He said, the lowest of servants in a house, um, they'd be the ones responsible for removing sandals and washing feet. Yes, uh, back in that time, the dirty, dusty, distressed feet, that's for the lowliest of the low to take care of with the guests. John is saying that he is not even worthy enough for the most undesirable job in caring for the Messiah. God's promised one is that holy, he is that precious, that powerful and divine, that John cannot even think of himself as a foot washer by comparison. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing how John, who is very clearly an important figure, not only in the narrative, but in all of salvation history, how he really, I mean, I think of the way that John phrases it in in John 3, in the Gospel of John, mm -hmm. that, that he must increase, I must decrease. And you yes. see John doing that here. So he's distanced himself. He's made sure everybody knows, hey, you're you're looking at the wrong guy. Yep. I want you to look at this guy, the one coming after me. So what does John preach about the one coming after him? Yeah, so besides you know his position relative to the Messiah, he, he goes on to describe the difference in what they are doing, right? The two baptisms. John's is going to be with water, but the Lord's will be with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's further distinguishing him from Messiah. John's baptism will cleanse as any washing would do. And it's alluded to before, right? It shows the crossing from the wilderness through the waters, the Jordan into God's place of promise. But Jesus' baptism will be the full spiritual conversion and cleansing uh, from sin. This does not mean that John's baptisms would have been invalid, though. We don't want anybody to think that. It simply means that they were not fulfilled until Jesus himself was baptized with water in the Jordan, with, with spirit as the Holy Spirit descended like the dove, and then with fire as the wrath of God is poured out on him at the cross. Jesus fulfills all baptism with his divine name and work. And so those baptized by John uh, were prepared for the Messiah. Their salvation comes by their faith in the promise, not faith in the action of the baptism itself. Similar, I mean, we could we could compare it to those of the Old Testament. Uh, all, if we want to talk about it as the sacrifices, right? The sacrifice of Christ on the cross fulfills all of the Old Testament sacrifices. But even those who died in faith in the Old Testament, their salvation is by virtue of their faith in God's promise of the Messiah, not in any faith toward the actions of taken in their lives, whether they are fruitful or not. Um, again, the book of Hebrews, that great chapter uh, all about their faith of those that have gone before, that's what makes them righteous, that's what uh, keeps them in the covenant. That's the same message. Um, again, Luke tying it into the universality of it. It's not about lineage. It's not about um, you being a part of this ethnic nation. It is about your faith in what God is doing. It is for all people. So everyone 
who receives this gift in faith is receiving the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, John uses the opportunity to point not only to who the Messiah will be, but what the Messiah will do. He will be the presence of God's promises. He will usher in God's judgment, both the blessing and the wrath. For those who are not prepared, who have not repented and and received God's forgiveness, the winnowing fork, the threshing floor, and unquenchable fire are the promised wrath. But for others, those who have been prepared with faithful repentance, whose lives produce faithful fruit, they will receive the blessing of God's wrath being passed over them onto the Messiah himself, the fulfilled baptism, Holy Spirit, and fire. So that is the end of the specific words from John that we get, but then Luke does give us this summary, and we mentioned this earlier, verse 18, this is a wonderful reminder, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. You know, I know... Sometimes in my own thinking, when when John shows up, I'm thinking, okay, here comes the wrath of God. But John is a preacher of good news. He he, and the reason is because he, as you've been saying, he points to Christ. And I mean, I know it's not in Luke's gospel, but in again in John's gospel, the preaching of John is always, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." So he is the preacher of good news. So any comments on that, Pastor Jones? And then make sure what is all this? I mean, John's a preacher of good news. What's his prize? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, poor John. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, Luke ends this passage by summarizing John's ongoing message um, and with more specific contextual ties back to the opening setting, right? In in this way, the whole passage is sort of bookended with the tangible history for the readers or hearers. Um, uh, This maybe we'll touch on the, the historical part and then we'll We'll end with, he's he's a preacher of good news. So um, the note about Herodias is showing um, what John is alluding to. I guess, excuse me, Luke is alluding to. John's the, the person in the text. Luke is writing it, okay? Too many Johns. <laughs> Sorry. Um, John had to preach the truth to Herod. Right? Herod had enticed, Herod Antipas had enticed Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, away from Philip. Um, that's wrong. That's bad. That's adultery. That is conniving. It's all sorts of sin. It's all sorts of arrogance. It's all sorts of pride. Uh, and John has to preach against it. He has to tell him what, that it was sinful. He's preaching the truth to power. Uh, but it did not end well for John. Uh, John is put in prison and ultimately... Um, Herodias comes up with a way to get John beheaded um, because Herod makes a, a foolish promise in a, in a moment of uh, enjoyment. Um, yeah, and so in another way that John is perhaps connected to the Old Testament prophets, he pays with his life. He gets jailed, eventually killed for preaching God's truth in its fullness of law and gospel to everyone, even the political mountains of the time. Yeah, I mean that. I think that this mention of his of his being locked up, as yeah. well as what we know is coming, it not only connects him to the Old Testament, but it also again cements him as the forerunner of Christ, because we get a, a picture already of, you know, we know John is the forerunner, and if this is what happens to John, then we know we have an idea of what's going to happen to Jesus. But again, this is the surprising way that God works in the world yeah. is that through yeah. this preaching that brings about persecution. 
he's actually going to bring salvation into the world, and he's going to do that through his son, John's the forerunner. With about two minutes here, Pastor Jones, help us to wrap things up. Again, bring us back to that. John is a preacher of good news. Yeah, so, I mean, John's ministry, perhaps clearly characterized by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as the preparation for the Lord's Messiah. But Luke makes it very clear at the end here that the message is not to cause fear or terror for the people. It is a message of hope and encouragement. He exhorts them with the good news of a loving and merciful God. He gives them the good news of a Savior that rescues even from sin and shame. So again, John's identification as an Old Testament prophet is at a point of transition. It's it's very striking, the connection of God's ongoing salvation for his people. They're on the brink of a major transition, a major manifestation of God's blessing and care. When Israel moved from wandering in the wilderness to receiving the gifts of stability, rest, and provision in the promised land, it was the same setting and movement. They crossed from the instability of the wilderness through the waters of the Jordan River into the permanence and stability of dwelling securely in the promised land. John's work is to prepare the people for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. With his baptism, the people again are moving from the chaotic wilderness, this time of our sinful hearts, through the waters of the Jordan, all baptism now, into the rest and care of the promised land, this time the eternal kingdom of God, not geographic, but one based on faith in the Messiah. So we can take this comparison even further when we remember that before the Israelite people cross over the to the promised land, the priests take the Ark of the Covenant into the river. The Ark was the sign of and the resting place for God's presence among his people. The people entered the promised land through the waters that God's presence had passed through first. It's the same in the Gospels as the incarnate word, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the physical human presence of God is baptized in the Jordan, making baptism the new watery entry into the promised kingdom of God. So John's message, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, is the message we all need as the preparation for the way of the Lord. Through our faith in him, in Christ, through his baptism of water, spirit, and fire, we are blessed at his coming and are given a place in his kingdom of peace and grace. And in that way, John connecting us to that entirety of God's salvation, absolutely a message of good news for all of us who repentantly receive it and hear with ears of faith. Pastor Rick Jones is chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota, helping us today with Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Pastor Jones, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. Appreciate being here. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 3 or any of the gospel, according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.